0: This episode is sponsored by Mind, Body, Green classes and trainings where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The Mind, Body, Green class library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, Mind, Body, Green classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com slash classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. Hilary Biscay is one of the most prolific iron distance competitors on the professional women's racing circuit, having completed over 60 Ironman triathlons. Not only is she one of the fiercest competitors ever to compete in Ironman, She's also a dear friend to my wife, Colleen, and a dear friend to me. It's an honor to have her on the podcast today. Hey, it's Jason Wackab, and we are here at Green headquarters in Brooklyn for the Green podcast. And today we are in for a treat. We have one of our dear friends, an early Green contributors, uh, Ironman champion, Ultraman world champion, entrepreneur, and now, mom, which we're gonna talk about, Hillary Biscay. Hi. Thank, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. So, I
0: don't know if you know this. So, first of all, we're gonna talk about like, you're like best friends with my wife, and you've known each other since childhood. You were also our first interview on Mind Body Green. In September 11th, 2009. Oh my gosh! Yes.
1: <laughs> I didn't realize that was the first one. You were like, the, first the first one. one. That's hilarious. so. The
0: second one was actually Sarma Mangalis from Pure Food and Wine, who I think oh is gosh. in jail right now. No way. That's another story. That's another another podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's
0: interview gone wrong, (laughs) and a lot of things gone wrong. But uh, So I want to start. So you're such a dear friend of of Colleen and and me, and we've known each other for so long. Um, I love a lot of things about you. First and foremost, I love that you're such a great friend to Colleen (laughs) and me. Um, But I love your story. And so you're an Ironman champion. Ultraman world champion, but you didn't start out as like the greatest athlete in the world. So so talk to me, like growing up in Palos Verdes and like competing in sport, like how, what was that like? How good were you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely not a naturally gifted athlete. Um, and to be honest, growing up in Palos Verdes, it was a very sort of um, academically focused yes. community. And it was all about, you know, what license plate holder your parents could have on their car bumper sticker and my kid goes to what Ivy Ivy League school. That kind of thing. So, I mean, quite honestly, everyone played sports, but it wasn't like a huge focus. Um, And sports weren't something that came really very easily to me. Mm -hmm. I grew up playing soccer. I was terrible. Um, But for some reason, what I always wanted most was to be a good athlete. School was something that came easily to me. Um, But... Nothing that came easy really ever seemed worth doing. It was always I wanted the things. Interesting philosophy. (laughs) So I wanted to be. I wanted to be an athlete. That was my thing, and um, and I was obsessed with. Became obsessed with becoming a good swimmer since like from from a young age.
0: So were were you? Were you a good swimmer?
1: I I wasn't actually. (laughs) Um, I, I wasn't. I was. I was so far behind. Kind of our whole peer group, though. Arguably, I was. Probably. That's a pretty good
0: peer group. Like you're in the capital of like swimming.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Southern California as a sure. whole. Yeah, um, but but I wasn't I wasn't great at it. Um, and I was I was probably like the most serious one of all of our friends. I was um, I would invite Colleen and and her sister Carrie over for you know play dates as you do like as a kid. And um, and my idea of a play date was to invent physical challenges that we would do on dad's (laughs) weight machine and in the pool, like how many laps can you swim underwater without breathing and how many dips can you do on dad's weight machine? That was like what we did with friends when I invited him over to my house.
0: No, nope, skip the dolls. We're going yeah, straight yeah. to I, like, I didn't, feats of strength.
1: I had so many dolls and I was like, what am I supposed to do with these things? Like, it was so weird. Like, you play pretend with the dolls? Why would you play pretend when you could train? Like, it right. just didn't make sense. So- <laughs> So
0: you're a big fan of video games too <laughs> then, I guess.
1: <laughs> also, another thing I didn't really understand. <laughs> so yeah, I was super serious, was not great. and truly didn't have a breakthrough in swimming until just before my senior year of high school. And I started swimming competitively when I was eight. Wow. So most women- so at this for a while.
0: Most kids yeah. give up too if they're not good.
1: Yeah. You just kept on going. I just always like knew I was gonna get there somehow. Right. And I, you know, it just, I just never even like waver. I just never questioned. I just knew it was coming. It just took me a lot longer than everybody else. <laughs>
0: And so you become good enough your senior year, you're, you have some options for college. Mm-hmm. And so, what are what are some of those options?
1: So, it was yeah, I was quite a late bloomer, and so I wasn't recruited yep. really until like the eleventh hour. Yep. Um, and ultimately, it came down to University of Michigan, that at that at that time had the second best women's swim team in the country. Yep. And a great sort of like liberal arts honors program, so that seemed like best yep. of both worlds. Um, but then I also had Harvard, and I loved. I visited there, and I loved yep. it. Had friends that were going there, um, but because of the recent improvements that I had made, it would have been would have kind of meant starting as a freshman and being you know, one of the best couple girls on the team, rather than going to a team that was ranked second in the country and being small fish in a big pond. Right. Um, and so ultimately, you know, much to mom and dad's dismay. <laughs> I was gonna say that, also went over well. <laughs> and all the dollars spent on <laughs> private schools, I opted to not go to Harvard. So you, yeah, I wonder what Michigan. percentage
0: of people who get into Harvard don't go.
1: <laughs> yeah, not definitely from Palos Verdes, not very many. Um, and my mom definitely cried, and uh, off I went to Ann Arbor, Michigan.
0: So you went off to Ann Arbor, uh-huh. but then you end up, so you end up transferring.
1: Yeah, yeah. Never in a thousand years that I think I would go to school at USC, because I was from LA. Right, USC. So your parents are
0: thrilled about that. It's like, okay, what, how many years ago did we have
1: the riots? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> safety-wise and all that, yeah, it wasn't a really very safe time in South Central Los Angeles. Right. It also seemed like, staying at home to go to school. So I had not been interested in that. But after, you know, eight months in Ann Arbor, seven of which were spent in like gray and freezing cold, I came home for the summer and had been invited to train with the club team out of USC for the summer. And I was like, wow, swimming outdoors in the sunshine is amazing. And the coach there was a total hard ass, so we really clicked. And it was at that point that I just was like, I'm staying. I'm staying here. And, yeah, never had thought I was going to end up in L.A., but it was life-changing.
0: And so your progression as a swimmer, did you start to improve? Did you Mm -hmm. start to become the best of the team? Were you still struggling?
1: Not at all. I was definitely not even close to the best on the team in that program because, once again, like— I felt like going from Michigan to USC, like up the ante yet again, USC had actually won the NCAA championship my freshman yep. year of college while I was at Michigan. There were it was a co-ed program, so we got to train with the men. There yep. were Olympic champions, world record holders all in this group. And that summer, my first summer there actually was the first time I had made an Olympic trials qualifying time standard. So I had some pretty big gains straight away. But even with that, I was small fish, big pond. Right. Um, And I just relished that position like I loved that so
0: so you get out of USC and then You get a job. Yeah, right. So it's what do you what do you do next?
1: So This was 2000 it was the time of like the dot-com boom and I wanted to work for I thought it'd be really cool to work for an internet startup company so I got a job like the seventh employee at a startup up in Silicon Valley, but I had just retired. I just competed in the Olympic trials and retired from competitive swimming because okay. there was no really professional swimming unless you were like an Olympic medalist. And I wasn't. Right. I love training. I love competing. And so I knew I needed to find something else to do. Right. And heard about this sport called triathlon and I knew how to swim. So I thought this seems like a great thing to do. Right. Never mind the fact that I didn't really like run or bike. So <laughs> Two I, out of the three. Yeah. I was like, I've got this head start. I can swim. Okay. So we planned... I planned to race triathlons like the following year. Just and for fun. And for fun. Yeah. Because I needed something to make me get up when the alarm went off before work right. and to get a workout in. Like I knew there needed to be like a deadline, there needed to be a race or something on right. the horizon. Um, so that was really how I came up with. So,
0: triathlons. what happens? You do your first triathlon. Do you do okay? Do you, do you say yeah. I like
1: this? Yeah. Or- yeah. I did a little sprint triathlon. I did. You know, I had ridden my bike for a total of fifteen miles, I think, before the race, barely even knew how to stay upright. For people the thing. aren't
0: familiar, triathlons are typically how many miles on a bike?
1: It varies. This right. one was a super short one, so this was like four hundred meters of swimming, ride your bike for nine miles, yep. run three miles. So Got the whole race took me like an hour. Super short. Okay. Um and yeah, I did, I did I did well. I think I was in the top few women at the race, but it was a little local race, so that doesn't really mean anything. But it gave me a false <laughs> sense of, I could be good at this, let's right. put it that way. I
0: wouldn't know, I don't know if, if it was a false sense. But <laughs> so then what happens actually? like, okay, maybe I could be good at this. And so when do you start, do you, you're still working? You yeah. still have a job? Mm-hmm. You start to train more?
1: Yeah, I basically spent four years getting more and more serious about triathlon. Yep. I went from working in an internet startup to, Teaching in public schools in East Palo Alto to a PhD program and teaching at USC.
0: I don't know. A lot of people know this. Like, you actually have a PhD.
1: No, I don't. You, you, I actually... You went to
0: the program. I but. did
1: Two and a half years. I got a master's along the way. And I took a leave of absence. So you have a master's in... English. Mm-hmm. It was... We got to the point where I had two more classes to take, one more semester of coursework, and then okay. writing a dissertation, which is obviously a massive yep. project. So I'm still a couple years out from finishing the thing. Got it. And... I kind of hit this, it was, you know, four years of gradually spending more and more time training, getting better and better, and realizing, okay, I'm, you know, 26, and I've got this, like, great academic and, like, intellectual opportunity here at school. I loved what I was doing. Um, But it freaked the heck out of me that I had passed my first set of exams. We had qualifying, like, or we had a screening exam like kind of two years into the program. Mm -hmm. And then I got to the point that I had two classes left to take and I was like, I felt like I was squandering this like intellectual opportunity. I'm like, I have two more classes and then it's like self-directed study and then I'm meant to go out into the world and teach this stuff (laughs) and I feel like I'm missing half of it because I'm just studying until I can't keep my eyes open at night, barely sleeping, getting up, training, I'm exhausted all the time. I'm missing something here but I'm also missing something in my training. Right. But this I can do. I could be an academic till I'm 75 if I want to. But right. I have a finite window to really pursue triathlon seriously. Yep. So that was when I decided to like take a leave of absence and see if I could make a career out of this.
0: So you take your leave of absence, mm-hmm. and then what happens next?
1: I um, basically so okay. Now I'm going to be a professional triathlete. And
0: so how do you make that? It's like okay, like how do-
1: <laughs> exactly? There are a lot of people that. Call themselves professional triathletes right. that don't make a living doing this. Right. Um, competing as a professional in triathlon because it, it actually
0: means you have to like start winning.
1: You have to or start winning. You have to have and placing, finishing all sure. that stuff, right? Yeah. But to compete as a professional, it's just a matter of a sort of performance standard. Sure. But just because you're performing at a certain level doesn't mean that you're performing well enough to make a living. There's a big difference. Sure, so absolutely. You're just, so I'd qualify to compete it's like in that being category. A yeah, exactly. or
0: anything else exactly. in life,
1: right? I mean, I had done the qualifications to compete as a pro my first year racing four years earlier, but I hadn't switched to that category because I knew I had no prayer of making a living. Right. I knew I needed to develop more as an athlete first. So I actually took my pro card and set about trying to, you know, rest better, train more in order to perform at the standard that I would need to to make a living doing this. And I had a two year window, the university would take me back anytime within two years, no Mm -hmm. questions asked. So I had a two year window to like make a go of this. And the deal I made with myself was, I'm never gonna do this off of someone else's back. I'm never gonna like do this with someone else supporting me. I have to make it work somehow, first of all. And second of all, it has to be fun because there's a lot of other things I could do and make more money. This has got to be like a passion project. So um, my first year racing professionally, had one sponsor that paid me $5,000. So
0: what year is this? This is like?
1: 2005. Okay. Mm-hmm. One sponsorship deal that was $5,000 for the year. And that year I earned $3,500 in prize money. Okay. So there we are $8,500. $5, yes. Yep. And in order to supplement my income, I got a job teaching private swimming lessons and coaching out of a sports clinic um, in Santa Monica. And I mean, I had no experience coaching triathlon. I had obviously like, you know, two decades of athletic experience, Mm -hmm. you know, training, but but not coaching. And I took on kind of a full load of coaching athletes and for very little money. And basically, I mean, I was working less than I was as a PhD student, but not that much less is the point. So um, you
0: can charge a premium for teaching kids in Southern California how to swim.
1: Well, you can. (laughs) If you swim at USC. You can, but unfortunately, this was like, these were like adult triathletes, and this was all through a clinic. So, Uh, they were charging I don't know what and paying me $70 an athlete per month to coach them. (laughs) So, it was like crazy. But this is what I was like doing to make ends meet. And um, living off of credit cards and all of that. So, we got to the end of that year, and I was like, right, well, (laughs) that was fun. But this is not really... So when
0: do you start to pick up momentum?
1: the next year okay. so at that point it was to me it was really like a do or die kind of decision sure. like I needed to make some drastic changes to make this work or it wasn't right. gonna work um, my performance was nowhere near where it needed to be to like really be competitive and make a living at this so um I decided to i had never hi- I had never had like a serious professional coach yep. um, I had kind of just like been able to do things on my own and keep improving, but I reached this kind of plateau, and I mm-hmm. knew I needed to go from here to here to yep. even have a prayer of, of making a living in the sport. So I basically like packed up life as I knew it, gave up my apartment, put all my stuff in storage, left my car with duffel bags in it at my parents' house, and moved to this like tiny town in the mountains of Switzerland to follow this crazy Australian coach who was meant to be this like genius who could transform anyone if you did what he said if you are crazy enough to do do what he said he he was meant to be like the most hard nosed right. crazy coach out there and I was like listen I'm desperate like I have one year to like make this happen so I don't really care what he asked me to do like in terms of training like I'll do I mean he had me running marathons like on a treadmill in a closet by myself like I, I did that yeah yeah, yeah. like
0: you re- really ran a marathon yeah. on a treadmill like a, in, a, in, in a closet like, in like the
1: boiler room closet on the pool deck mm-hmm. yeah whatever it takes <laughs> yeah so I just signed was there on for that in there? so there was light but like basically everything in the room had died so we had no music no fan nothing and like by halfway through I was like slipping off the treadmill because there was so much sweat on it that my feet couldn't even like grip on the treadmill belt and um, you could reach out and touch the brick wall, like sides of the room, that's how small it was.
0: I think that's like the new test for people to see, how badly do you want this? Would you run on a treadmill in a boiler room closet to achieve your goal? That's the question you mm, need to ask yourself.
1: No music, three hours and 20 minutes by myself, ready go. Yeah, yeah, so I, I just was willing to like just, I mean literally it was a strange thing as a 27 year old like adult really, I mean, with this guy, you just completely handed over control of your life to him. Like, you show up in this town, and he gave me, like, a trial, period. Uh, Basically, all you know is that Monday through Saturday at 7 a.m., you have to be on the pool deck and ready to jump in the water.
0: So, were you just solo with other people there as well? Solo.
1: I was part of his squad, but I was there. I mean, I didn't know anybody else in the squad. I was the only American, and they were people from all over. A lot of them were Olympic athletes. Right from you know brazil australia denmark like we were all just there to follow him right um and i just had to i mean i couldn't even schedule like a haircut because you don't know what you're doing like in five hours time you show up at the pool at 7 a.m you do your swim you finish and he tells you where you need to be at 11 for the second of three workouts of the day wow and every day you just did whatever he said and the next year i went from so i went from that to the next year finishing in the top five at six Ironmans that wow. year, which was twice as many Ironmans as I'd ever raced in one season. I mean, he, he completely changed my thinking, my results, I mean, everything, so.
0: So what year is this now?
1: 2006.
0: And then when do you win your first Ironman?
1: 2008.
0: 2008, you won Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So what happens in between 2006 and 2008 in terms of competing and what you're, and how is that going?
1: So, yeah, I mean, everything really changed in my within my first season of training with with this guy who's called, named Brett Sutton, and that I went from being a, am I going to make a living at this, to, like, I'm really making a living at this. Right. And, uh, and at that time, like, nobody else was racing with that kind of frequency or able to, like— Right,
0: I think that's important to, to talk about, too, because how many, like, you're known on the circuit as, like— just a, an animal, like you, you, you race more than anyone, you compete more than anyone. I think you finished a race with a broken hip.
1: They pulled me off the course with a mile <laughs> and a half to go, but yeah, I mean, I, t- I tried to finish. You tried to finish? Yeah.
0: But like how, give, give people an idea for how many Ironmans you competed in and what was typical at that point?
1: I've done like- In a year. Oh, in, in a year, the most average was like nine. Yep. Um, What's the
0: average for, for, for mere mortal Ironman triathletes?
1: Mere mortals, I mean, non-professionals like one or two yep. um and and now nowadays professionals are racing a lot more frequently it's not uncommon to see a professional race like three maybe even four in a year um, but at that time to race six in a season was right. like people thought that was you know counterproductive and that that um wasn't sustainable and sure. that kind of thing but what one of the things that that we found is that, I mean, I'm never gonna, just much like as a swimmer, I'm not the speediest athlete out there, but we found that I was very durable and that I could race that often and do it well. Right. And that was the way that, you know, I could go to six Ironmans and get a bunch of like thirds and maybe a couple seconds and fourth and make a living off of that instead of, I wasn't someone that was just gonna go nail two Ironmans, win them both and cash in like all my bonuses and right. prize money and just get her done there. I didn't have that kind of talent but I could race a lot and like make a living by a lot of like kind of consistently Mm -hmm. top few finishes.
0: So along the way did people say like, ah, you can't do this or?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, people thought that was like, oh, it's crazy, you're gonna get injured, you're gonna get burnt out and get this and that. Um, But one of the things that this coach taught me was that especially if you're doing things that other people can't wrap their head around. They have to justify to themselves why it's wrong because like, right. they don't want to do it. Right? <laughs> it's like it seems too hard. So right. uh, it must be like it's, just, it's too much. It's too much. So. I think
0: you raise the bar for the whole sport.
1: Well, I mean, in
0: terms of competing, absolutely.
1: Yeah, with like frequency and that. Yeah. Um, and it's cool. I mean, now people are seeing that. Like, there are. I'm not the only one who can race like that. Right. It, but people just didn't didn't try because it kind of went against, right. like, you know, the sort of commonly held, like, wisdom at that right. time.
0: And so, before you won, so you won your first Ironman, Ironman Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, uh, if I recall, someone told you you were done.
1: Oh, well, so this coach, <laughs> he basically, it was interesting, like, he said to me uh, when I started with him in the fall of 2008, he said, First of all, he thought he was going to weed me out within a year. But I, th- I think his, his like, long <laughs> he range... He didn't know you well enough. <laughs> yeah. His, his long range... He thought that I, I was going to discover within a year that this wasn't a like, viable career for me. Um, but once we got past that, he said, okay, you have like three years. Yep. And it was literally almost three years to the day that I joined him that I finally won an Ironman. Wow. And so it was like right after that that he said okay, you've far exceeded like, my expectations. This is as good as it's ever gonna get. <laughs> you need to bow out now. Like, the sport's gonna run right. away without you. And you've had a great career, like, so quit while you're ahead. Um, and I was 30 and I just had the race of my life. Right. So that was a really, really tough pill to swallow, especially because in my mind, everything I had attained in my career was thanks to doing everything that he said. Right. And so I had to then say, if I want to continue having a career in this sport, I have to choose to, you know, suddenly like not believe everything that has right. has gotten me where I where I am. Right. Um and that was really, really tough to come back from.
0: You have to say, how do you overcome that? Mentally? It took a
1: couple of years. <laughs> right. It truly took a couple of years. In order for me to really like put that out of my mind and i can't say necessarily how i did it other than it was just like time and stubbornly trying to right like just carry on so it took a few like performances where i was like no this is as good if not better than i right. was then and i am still here and i can still do this even without his guidance um of course everything to a certain degree, is from his guidance because it's all things that I learned from him. But mm-hmm. even with him not being my coach and not believing in me, I can still be sure. competitive. So,
0: so when he said that to you, did you say anything back? Like, what was that conversation I, like?
1: You know, I never just wanted to disrespect him, right? And I'm still so grateful for. Right. I, I wouldn't have had a career if it wasn't for him taking a chance on me. So, um, but I just said, you know, I'm not ready to retire, and. Right. Thanks for, you know, everything. We parted right. on good terms, quite honestly. Right. But with that I, I really couldn't like speak to him for a few years because sure. when you know what the, really in his head he's thinking, what's she doing out here?
0: Right.
1: <laughs> Still racing. Um, I just had to like take a step back.
0: Did you ever think, or in retrospect, you ever thought like maybe this was a Jedi mind trick that he knows me and then this <laughs> is the only way, this is the only way knowing I don't like people. When people tell me you know? no, I this is what will keep me going.
1: That is a, that is a thought and, and I wouldn't, <laughs> he was a master of Jedi mind tricks, but I, with him I felt like he truly, he had always felt from day one like your talent is elsewhere, it's not here and you should be spending it on that. So I kind of felt like he he was like okay now move on with life like there are other things you're gonna be better at than this like get on to the next step right
0: so let me ask you like why do you think you've been so successful as a triathlete like there are a lot of great athletes there are a lot of great swimmers bikers runners but you, you 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 know have been extremely successful like what do you think it is that you have that made you so successful as a triathlete.
1: I think I think it's just really a sort of like laser-like focus on where I want to go. And this, mm-hmm. I think I am like not just in like my, pers- my approach to sports, but in life really good at just like tuning out things that tuning I don't need noise. to hear. Yeah, yep. like I'm not easily offended or um, influenced. Like right. I'm really good at the, um, what I like to describe to my athletes as the, Uh, smile and nod so you know if if someone's sort of trying to um, get in your head about something or or you know challenge something that I really believe to be true I'm I'm not going to be I can I can just politely smile and nod and I so people smile and nod and move on yeah (laughs) the the naysayers and that kind of thing like I always just I I always I'm I'm a goal setter I always need to like have a goal to like get me up in the morning what whatever that kind of goal might be and I'm just gonna like focus on it and get it done. I'm not worried about how long it's going to take, like I, I'm not afraid to work for years for this one thing, so mm-hmm. um, I, don't, I don't quit so, anything. So would
0: you say, if we, if we were gonna say, success as an athlete is mental and physical, mm. how would you weigh your skill, like how much of your success if on a percentage base is physical, because there is some physicality yeah. to it, Right. but and how much is mental? Gosh, I feel
1: like I feel like it's fifty fifty. But I guess when I think about my physical strength, my physical strength is is uh, to me largely like an ability to to suffer, um, and so maybe that's also then men- mental, right? Like. Well, I- It's funny
0: you say that because, like, you say the mental strength, the ability to suffer. Peter Toney, the artist, like, I asked him one time in an interview, like, what's the greatest quality you need to succeed as an artist? Yeah. And he said the ability to suffer. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because he said people will tell you how terrible your work is all the time and you need to accept it and move on and keep on going because to get to that point, to success, like, you have – so it's the same thing. Yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah.
1: No, totally. It's – I mean, I just think I'm not – I'm not afraid of, you know, large amounts of discomfort. So what
0: are you afraid of then?
1: Hmm. I don't like. To, I don't know. What am I afraid of? Gosh. Not afraid of getting my ass kicked. That's for sure. That happens on the regular, and that's like that motivates me. Do you, you afraid of failure like that? <sighs> I guess I don't really. I don't know what. I'm trying to think of what I would. What I would call fail, failure. It was more. I was always afraid of like something breaking my like finishing streak of races. Like something that was out of my control. Like a like breaking a hip. Like well, like that. Yeah. <laughs> That still was in my control. I mean, I guess I shouldn't have started that race. I should have known my hip is broken. I can't start this so race. You started the
0: race with a broken hip. Yeah. To be clear. Yeah. But so, it, were you feeling a little discomfort? I felt some
1: discomfort. <laughs> I did, but it it was only like partially cracked, I think, and then it cracked all the way through as I was running. So that's so, why it was like.
0: And so, but you made it to... <laughs> so I did. So, I at co- what point of the triathlon you made it like ninety percent, ninety eight? Hmm. You were how?
1: I think I collapsed with about. It's like four <laughs> miles, four or five miles so to go. So basically, finished
0: an Ironman triathlon with a broken hip.
1: Yeah, I just crawled. I had plenty of time left. I crawled. I just dragged it behind me. And then- Would
0: you not recommend that at home?
1: I, you know, I mean, I wasn't putting weight on it, so I feel like I could have made it, but the doctor on the course apparently didn't recommend that at home. And she told me, you're 25, and if you keep going on this, you're going to need a new hip, and this way you can just get a surgery and it'll be fixed. And sure enough, I, she was not, she was like, right, she diagnosed when it on the spot. When
0: you passed out?
1: She, they just loaded me into an ambulance, <laughs> and to, like popped me up on painkillers and sent me home on a plane, and so, yeah.
0: So- uh, also, in the ultra endurance world, you you're also world champion of ultra marathon.
1: Ultraman. Ultraman. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you tell people quickly what that is?
1: Ultraman <laughs> is a triathlon stage race. So, kind of like the Tour de France is a stage race for cycling, where they bike a certain distance every day over three weeks. This yeah. is we don't have a lot of stage racing in triathlon. Most events are one day events, but the Ultraman is a double Ironman plus distance triathlon, but it's staged over three days, so.
0: So entirety, how many miles are we covering?
1: 6.2 miles of swimming, yep. 260 miles of cycling, and 52.4 miles of running. And um, this part, the World Championships, t- just like the Ironman World Championships takes place on the Big Island of Hawaii, yep. and Ultraman circumnavigates the entire island. So that's that's wow. the, that's where we how we travel over three days, Wow. and a lot of it's on the same course as the Ironman. Um, and so it's for me, it's in total about twenty four hours of racing over three days, about eight hours a day.
0: And you won that in twenty thirteen thirteen. Mm-hmm. And so, how did that did that feel any different? Winning that race versus winning Ironman Wisconsin.
1: It did, yeah. Because I mean, it had been five years since my last like really big win, yep. and. You know, sort of having to overcome a lot of those mental battles of sure. wondering if I was ever going to do better than I had yep. um, in two thousand eight. So I think that I I appreciated that win yep. that much more. Um, and yeah, it was just it was very it was really a I had I had raced there three years earlier and I had come second and come like pretty close to winning, and it was. This particular race, my performance just, like, far exceeded my performance of the right. three years previous. And it was just a really – it was one of those very rare races. Yeah. Um, when you're racing races that are, you know, between 9 and 24 hours, it's rare that you have, like, a perfect race. And I wouldn't say it was perfect, so did, but it's as perfect as did you're going to you know get. it?
0: Were you in the – in flow or in the – zone? like, as you were going, did you just, like, feel it? Did you yeah, have that?
1: It was one of those, like, events where I felt like, like this is what I'm made to do. That's how I felt. I felt like this is, like – I am like, this is this is my jam right here, like more than Iron Man, more than anything else, like wow. this, like really long, hard race is, I just felt like that I was in my element.
0: And on the flip side, have you had races where you're just like, what am I doing?
1: Oh yeah, oh, have, <laughs> uh, tons, tons and tons, I mean, so many. I and mean, this
0: is gonna go on for another how many hours? Yeah,
1: well, and, and, and I even had those moments during that race. I mean, I remember in particular, Coming out of the 6.2 mile swim, and my first like hour and a half that I was cycling, so you arrived at about 90 miles uphill after that. And it's hot, it was hot as blazes. And you know, you're just basically going uphill, you don't have a lot of wind blowing on you. So it is hot, hot, hot. And I was smashed from that swim that I was, I have to say, very, very, very well prepared for. But so I shouldn't have come out of the water feeling smashed, but I did. <sighs> and I felt like my head was about to explode. I was so hot and thinking, I mean, yeah, here we are five hours into twenty four hours of racing. I mean I felt terrible. But (laughs) in those races, you always have those moments, even in your like and I'm calling that like a perfect race for me, but I still had a good like hour and a half or more of like I'm gonna die and I'm on day one.
0: So what do you think it is, you know, for endurance athletes or aspiring endurance athletes out there, what do you think are the qual like what do they need to succeed? For someone out there who's like, you know, I I was an athlete or I think I can do this, like what do you think it takes to succeed? Maybe not win an Ironman, but right. just succeed. And, yeah. And, and
1: what's so cool is I think it's actually quite it's quite simple, and that was what really got me hooked on the sport in the beginning. Yeah. Um, was that coming from a swimming background, where you literally can glide too long into one turn, and that's your race over. Like it's like half right. a second, and that's the difference between a good race and a crappy race. Yep. Yeah. With Ironman, even with shorter triathlons, like the ones that are, you know, an hour or two long, what I saw from the beginning was that the work you put in, you got that out of the race, right? You Mm -hmm. can screw up one little detail, but it doesn't matter because ultimately your fitness and the work you put in is going to determine like your result. So, I mean, and you're always gonna make little silly mistakes because the race is long. But at the end of the day, your result is gonna be a measurement of like how fit you are. Right. Um, because that will always like, triumph over any silly like, right. mistake you might make. So really what it takes, I think so much more than talent or anything else, is just the willingness to be consistent and do the work. Like get a training plan, when your alarm goes off at five in the morning, get out of bed, <laughs> right. go do your workout, do that every day, every week, every month, for like a year, two years, three years, and you will, you will see your gains. It's like right. very, very simple, and that's what I loved about it. Just put in the work, you see the results.
0: Metaphor metaphor for life to some degree. <laughs> um, and so you've recently retired. Yep. And so how did you know? Like what, what goes on? I'm always curious about athletes who retire. And you yeah. have some who, some people believe going out on the top and maybe they retire too early. Then you have some people who hang on too long and it's like sad. And then then I think about it all, you know, it's like they're they're athletes and you see it in professional sports all the time. Yeah. Uh, And it's hard because in so many ways at that level as a professional athlete, it's your identity. Yeah. And it's like a thing Mm -hmm. and there's nothing like that feeling of like finishing with people there. Like it just,
1: and
0: you don't, so like how did you approach Retirement and your thought process. Yeah,
1: it. For me, I think it was a little different than than for some people. I think a lot of people I see, you know, at the level where I was, they will sort of plan and like, this is my last race, and they right. have like a retirement race. And I always thought, gosh, that would be like, wouldn't that be so sad if you we were just running along and knowing this is going to be your last finish line? And right. and I wasn't opposed to doing it that way. I just it just happened to not happen that way for me. Um, my last year competing season I'm competing was 2014, so I had just won biggest race in my career. You yeah. know, Ultraman was at the end of November, December 1st in 2013, and I intended to race the next season, um, and I did race, you know, kind of through June and intended to go back to my favorite race, Ironman Wisconsin in September, and I just I had this weird series of mishaps over right. the summer where, you know, I had a bike crash and this, like, crazy infection and all these things that got in the way of training so that I found myself like three weeks out from Ironman Wisconsin and extremely like unfit, you know, relative to where I wanted to be going into like my race. Right. Um, So I pulled the pin on that race, you know, know, much to my dismay, and right about that time, the Ironman Corporation announced that the following year they were no longer gonna have a professional race in Ironman Wisconsin. And at this point I've done 66 Ironmans, I've done- Which
0: pretty astounding.
1: <laughs> it's, in it's, how
0: many years?
1: Um, well, I started in 2001, but-
0: When did you, you weren't serious until-
1: Yeah, I mean, that was racing, you know, one a year. So the bulk of those were done in about eight years, from 2006 to Is that to a record?
0: That must be a close- So,
1: there are people who have raced more than I have. But um, not at
0: the level. I think
1: that's like the most professional races, right, yeah. Right. So, I mean, I, I had done most of the races on the circuit and had, you know, accomplished most of my goals, um, but there, there were a couple of races, Ironman Brazil and Ironman Wisconsin in particular that I was excited about going back every year to do the same race. Right. And we, Wisconsin was really the one. And so I was kind of looking at the next season and thinking, I just, I don't know. There was nothing that I was really stoked about racing. Right. There was nothing that really like lit a fire in me to go train really hard and, and train to, right. I felt like. I checked the boxes right. um, in terms of like what I feel like I need to do, and at the same time, I had been building um, my clothing brand. Yes, Smash Fest um, Queen. Smash Fest Queen. Which yep.
0: everyone has to check out.
1: And I had uh, and my coaching business, which, which I had been doing since I yep. started, and I felt like I've achieved all my goals, like on the playing field, and I I just wanted to put my energy into these other pursuits. Yeah. And so that was kind of I just kind of, you know, made the decision, you know what, there isn't there isn't right. anything. I'm super excited about competing in and I am more excited about growing these two other things. Right. And so that was just how I it was right. kind of going in between the twenty fourteen and twenty fifteen season, I thought, you know what, like I'm not racing. Right.
0: And what's so great too, what I've learned about you in the triathlon community is there's a community and so your husband Mike is mm-hmm. also an Ironman champion who also won Ironman Wisconsin yep. um, and and you have a lot of friends who are Ironman champions and like talk to me a little bit about like what's that community like and why it's important and you're still very much part of it it's, yeah. it's not like I think other sports where it's like you retire and like you're done you're done yeah like you're still very much part of this community
1: yeah I mean that's my world still and so I think that's Maybe why it was at first harder, but then also easier to retire because it wasn't like my life changed drastically from right. one day to the next. Um, partially because I did have these two big projects going on that continued. Right. Um, but also because the next year I was still at most still of there. all the same races. So not like you show
0: up to the <laughs> stadium they're like, sorry, yeah. where's your ticket? <laughs> no.
1: So I will say it was quite odd. I do remember like the first big North American hit out is in Oceanside late March, early April every year. And I do remember very vividly being, you know, at the Oceanside half Ironman, um, you know, at the beginning of 2015 and Mike was racing and I'm standing outside the pro area. Like I don't have my, I don't have a pro pass. I mean, I could have probably pulled some strings and been in the transition area, but I wasn't gonna do that because I wasn't racing. And being on like quite literally on the other side of the fence looking through and those are all my friends and they're racking their bikes and they're getting ready to race. And that was really weird and hard um, like I was only like one of like two or three times that I remembered it being really like right. hard being on the outside um, but fortunately because that is my world my husband was still racing my athletes are still racing and I try to see them race whenever right. possible my best friend is still winning every Ironman on the circuit Got That's the boys, Meredith, Meredith right? Kessler yep. yeah going to support her so thankfully I didn't have to just like leave my whole right. life behind right.
0: And you sit on the couch and drink beer and yeah. become depressed and, <laughs> no. and all the right.
1: No, so so that that, that was nice, you know. And, and I'm still I'm still able to do that. I mean, Mike and I, Mike's now pro- probably retired, and he and I were just in New Zealand supporting my right. athletes in February at a race there. But it's not like
0: you still you still run and bike and swim.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and that that was a big revelation in the retirement process for me. Is initially I thought. Oh like I'm gonna have so much more time to work because I'm not gonna be training like five, six hours a day. I'm gonna get up in the morning, go for a little jog, work all day. That's what I thought. And what I learned is I am like not a productive human being if I like just jog for 40 minutes in the morning.
0: So what's a, what's a nice little jog for you these days?
1: Well, a 40 minute jog is fine, but I also <laughs> need to do a spin class like and something else. Right.
0: So do you need like a full two hours to unwind?
1: Yeah, at least. Yeah. So, do
0: you just think like you're built, like, is this just who you are? Like, you're wired differently? Or was this started with like childhood? I'm so curious. Like, I'm like the opposite. So, I'm curious.
1: Yeah. I don't know if my body's just used to that. So, for me to go from training like 35 hours a week to now 15 to 20, if that's just like weaning off. And so, my body needs that to, in order to function, I need the like endorphins. Yep. Because I've trained it to need it. Or, I also feel like I am like inherently quite ADD, and right. so I think well everything I've read about ADD and exercise and productivity and that kind of thing like um, I think that I need that because like literally if I just jog forty minutes I will waste so much time clicking around between web pages while I'm trying to like actually do work because I can't even focus right. so. I have to do it first thing. I have to do a couple hours, or at least have it be very in- a very intense hour. Right. If I on hard, really hard for an hour. Right. I can. I'll be fine. Right. But I don't know which is it's a chicken or egg thing. I don't know which it is. <laughs> but I just know like that's what I have to do to be a not depressed, b productive, right. C feel good about myself. Right. Yeah.
0: So now you've got something else that gets you up in the morning. You have an amazing daughter, Madison, who I love. I didn't get this at first, but <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin, <laughs> Ironman, Wisconsin. You both won. Yes. is so perfect, and she's yes. beautiful and amazing. And she's how old? Six months? Six
1: and a half months. Six yep. and a half months. Mm-hmm. And so,
0: adoption. You, Madison, is adopted. Can yep. you like talk to me about? That the decision and that process and the pros and cons, the whole thing.
1: Yeah, gosh. Um, I, have, I talk about this all day, but basically, way back in a previous lifetime when I was still like an amateur triathlete um, training in LA, we had a local tri club that volunteered with this inner city kids triathlon program, like east of LA. And we got involved. It was a there was a, a very, very well-known um, older age group triathlete named Sheree Gruenfeld, and she had started a foundation called Exceeding Expectations that got these inner-city kids training for triathlons. Mm-hmm. And really, it wasn't about triathlons, but but it was about giving giving them, A, an activity on the yeah. weekends, and B, incentive. They had to do well in school, and then they were able to go and do the race and train sure. and do these activities. So I started organizing... But what they didn't have was enough adults to go like, take them on training bike rides and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I started organizing adults from our Tri Club in LA to drive out on the weekends and do like training with these kids. And in the process, I met um, one of their school teachers who was like, a single Caucasian woman who had adopted two boys. Mm-hmm. And one was Hispanic and one was African American. And she shared with me like a lot about that experience. Yep. And these two kids were both in the program. And from that, like, and I could not like, ask her enough questions. Like, I was just like, so intrigued. And from that moment on, this is literally like 2003 or four. Um, this is what I'm doing. Like, I am going to adopt babies oh, and, wow. or kids or whatever it's going to be. I didn't know at that time. I don't care if it's like by myself. Whoever I'm marrying is going to be on board because this is what I'm doing. This is
0: what I'm doing. As you said, I'm going this way. Yeah. And I will, this is what I'm doing. I will listen and smile.
1: Yeah. And so. Mike, I don't even remember, but he says that I told him on our second date. He's like, yeah, we were in Sydney. I met him in Australia. Yep. We were in, When we were on a date in Sydney, you told me that you're adopting kids, and this is what you're doing. So <laughs> so he's just known. So does this
0: woman like know the impact she's had? Have you kept in touch before? So, or? It's
1: funny because the founder of the program, Cherie, I'm actually about to start a big like fundraising for her program. Amazing. Um, a big scholarship push like next month, but so I'm in touch with her and I haven't seen Jackie in a couple of years, but I've told Cherie, And so I'm sure that Jackie has heard like secondhand that, that I followed in her footsteps. So, um, that's
0: amazing. I'm sure she had no idea at the time. It's like people have conversations yeah. like this all the time and you just never know like, mm. oh my God, like this woman, like had of yeah. like, impacted your life and then your daughter's life. And right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I know it, it is like, over the years, when I would see her, I would say, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this someday. I really am. And right. I don't know if she, I oh, mean, yeah, I've yeah. heard that before. I don't say, if I say it, I'm going to do right. it, people. So, yeah. and um, But we, my husband and I started the process in 20, 2013. So it was a Jesus. long, it took about three and a half years.
0: And like how the process is not perfect. Can you like share mm-hmm. with people? I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with the process. Yeah. And just talk to me, like, I know it was like torturous and just ups and downs and just It's not as simple as like, okay, we're gonna adopt.
1: Yeah, no, it's a really, it was a long process and we definitely took a circuitous route. Um, We started out trying to do foster adopt uh, in Tucson where we live. And then we did all of of the training and licensing for that. And because we had in the process decided that we wanted like kind of a very young baby as opposed to like a toddler at that time, um, our agency ended up saying, you know, you should probably go the private route and get an attorney um, versus trying to adopt a baby through the public system. Right. And so we ended up hiring an attorney in Arkansas, of all places, because I had friends who had adopted through right. her. And she happens to have been doing adoptions in the area for 35 years. Yep. And so moms who are in trouble um, no, come to her in Northwest Arkansas. and. And so she just happens to get a lot of, of moms who are having babies that they can't keep for one reason right. or another coming her way. And so we, after you know, two and a half years after we started the process, we finally signed on with wow. her. And to be fair, it was only about like 14 months from, the, from then until we were placed with Madison, our daughter. Right. But in the meantime, I had no idea how sort of like emotionally taxing. Sure. I didn't. I didn't suspect that it would take three and a half years. First of all, second of all, um, we ended like, it.
0: Yeah, well, it's like you're you're two nice, lovely people. You know, you have an income. Like mm-hmm. you're pillars of the community. Mm-hmm. Like there's no you can provide for the child. It should be like okay. Like we're easy.
1: Yeah. No. But it's very. You know, and we really wanted to. to you know, to do for example. You know, the foster adopt program for example, and. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, fortunately, the way the legal system is set up in our country, um, it is set up with the ultimate goal of the reunification of the family. So what that means is that you could be placed with, you know, a foster child, um, and who whom you are hoping to adopt. Yeah. And you could have that kid in your house for a couple of years, and you know, even you know, mom who's in and out of prison or whatever right. is going to be given chance after chance after chance to right get that kid back or at the 11th hour, grandma could put her hand up and say, I want that kid. It's
0: just not good for anyone. It doesn't seem it's like, tough. like it's, I get how I'm like, it's really complicated and hard, but it seems like that's hard for blood, rel- it's hard for parents, it's hard for blood relatives. It, it puts people who want to adopt in a, but it's, right. it's just, it's, it's, just, hard it's, it's very kid. hard. Like, yeah. I don't know how, it's just hard.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it is. And, and so, you know, as much as I would have loved to do it that way, I mean, ultimately, we knew from day one we were right now not in the business of foster parenting that we right. wanted to adopt. That was definitely what we wanted to do. I like to think that after we raise our family, we're going to want to foster to be foster parents. But step one, I, I knew we wanted to raise you know a family, and I, I didn't know if I was emotionally like tough enough to deal with, yeah, having a kid in my home for a couple of years, right. and then just kidding, it's not you know, you, can't, you can't keep that kid. So. Right. So so that was hard, but what I didn't realize was just how much uncertainty there, there would be sure. um, in the, even going the private route. We were initially matched with a birth mom and flew out to Arkansas to meet her, um, and she disappeared. Um, huh. And then we were matched with another birth mom, and we flew out when her baby was born and were with him, taking care of him in the hospital for two days, and then birth mom decided that she wanted to parent this Jesus child. Christ. Um that's got to be that's Gosh, I mean, I am certainly <laughs> not here to like be taking anyone's baby like I am just we're right. hoping to give a home to a kid that that is not going to have one. That was the whole point. Like I just I wasn't personally very attached to like pr- reproducing like a, my a, own genes. Emotionally,
0: that's torturous.
1: Yeah, but but um but and, and to know that he was going to be living in a car with mom, like the mom didn't have a place to live and this right. is where this is where he was going. That was Really, really tough. Um, that was one of the hardest things that we've ever been through. Right. Um, and again, I didn't realize how common a, an occurrence that was um, right. until after the fact.
0: So the first one essentially is fraud, mm-hmm. adoption fraud. It is. Which it's is exactly apparently what like what a big is. thing that happens.
1: Exactly what it it's is, It's like yep. people,
0: multiple, entertaining multiple people and mm-hmm. collecting checks for multiple people yep. and then just skipping town. Yep. And and it's like a bit, it's, I'm it's, oh like, it's just fucked up. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yep, yep. And that's what our attorney says, like, in the beginning when she when she signs on with people. She says, okay, so just so you know, like, are, are you comfortable, like, taking, like, $10,000 and putting it in the toilet and, like, pressing the flush button? She's like, because that is what you're signing on to do, potentially. Like, because right. that's what could happen. Right. Because, yeah, and, of course, you're supporting the birth mom once she signs on to that she's giving up this baby, like, you're making sure she has food on the table and that her rent is paid and all right. of that. So there is money involved, and and it's it's absolutely a risk because mom could disappear, and that's right. what happened to us. Right. Um, and the mom changed her mind. And, and that's
0: a yeah, and that's just like emotionally torturous. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was it was brutal because especially because although you know it's not guaranteed once you're there in the hospital with this oh, baby and taking real. care of them. Right. 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 And so that was super gnarly, and. You know, our attorney said, go home and think about it and think if you want to continue with this process. And I was like, well, we absolutely want to continue. This is terrible, right, but right. like we're going to end up with our child someday right. and a child who really needs a home and I need to be stronger than this process, right? That was like just the way I thought about it at that time. Right. And so I said, of course, we want to still be involved. And she said, you know, when you guys were here, uh, since you guys have been here with this baby, a woman showed up in my office and she's 19 and um, she's pregnant and she's having a baby in November and she can't keep this baby. She said, I need to, you know, get to know her better, but maybe she could be, this could right. be the one. And we said, okay. And so two weeks later, we were actually at Revitalize and she yeah. called, I'll be in, we were in our hotel room just checking in and she said, this mom just checked out, like she's, she really is, wants to give up this baby and I think could be a good match for you. She said, call me when you're home from this weekend. So we did on Monday after Vitalize, and she told us about birth mom and said, are you interested? And we said, right. yeah. She like, okay, great, send more money tomorrow. <laughs> okay, great, we will. And that was, that was Monday, and the baby girl was due November 3rd, and this was Monday, you know, September 19th or whatever. And Saturday, I was out on a bike ride, and my phone rang, and it was attorney saying, your oh. baby's being born in two hours. Wow. So, and that was the day. That was the day that it all happened.
0: And so when you got there, and like the time frame too between the first one, this was like a very short. Short. Like talk about rollercoaster. Like Literally, This was like 30 days. Or? It was
1: three weeks to the day that we had flown home devastated from our second trip to Arkansas that we were flying back out there. And um, total PTSD, same hospital, like everything.
0: Right. And the first one wasn't too... That was pretty close. Like the whole time frame mm-hmm. was pretty close. You we were out there
1: in July meeting birth mom number one. Jesus. Um, and then August, the second right. baby was born. End of August, and then end of September, Madison was born on September twenty fourth.
0: Wow. So you get there and she's born, and you see her. A part of you like, is this real? Yeah. Or you da- Like it's that tough. It's like you want to get attached, and you're there, and it's amazing. And then it's like, but this, like, what is that? Mm-hmm. What was that like?
1: That was. It was hard because. Yeah, you want to be excited, but you can't like, I mean, we even spent, we spent a good really like 10 days in the hospital until. That's
0: right, because she was early, so mm-hmm. you lived there.
1: We lived in the hospital for 16 nights. Wow. Um, but it was a, until about like 10 days in that the mom's like window to change her mind was yep. up. which is actually really, really, Arkansas is actually really fast. And I didn't even know that. We only ended up in Arkansas because we liked this attorney that was there. Right. But what I didn't realize. I is it that, was
0: one of, one of your favorite states, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to know Northwest Arkansas really well. It's actually way cooler than I expected. Yes. But um, it just happened that we ended up in a state where the waiting period is actually, uh, you know, short. quite short. Right. And so it was about 10 days in that that we could breathe a sigh of relief because relief the mom has X amount of, mom, mom signs her rights over basically right. straight away or even ahead of time in some cases. But then she has a window after the baby comes to right. change her mind, which is great, of course, to make sure that everybody's sure about the decision. Right. But we were there in the hospital, and even though we hadn't seen her or heard from her in days. Still, until that window until was that up.
0: Happened. Then you could, I
1: mean, yeah. I mean, my like, we didn't, we didn't um, tell anyone her name until right, then. We right. didn't. Don't get me wrong. We still really enjoyed those first days, but it's a little bit sure. And I have nothing to compare it to because I've never, you know, given birth to a kid that I know no one's going to steal from me. But like, right. it was. Um, it is, I guess, a weird thing sure. to to experience.
0: What do you want people to know? Who are listening or watching about adoption?
1: Oh, um, this is—I feel so like strongly about this topic. But I guess, despite the fact that I've just told a bit of a scary story about it, um,
0: there's an extremely happy ending. Yeah,
1: I mean, Mike and I would go through that all a hundred times over to to have our daughter. And yeah, what what I want people to know is that it's all so worth it. And that there are just so many kids out there that need homes. Right. And, yeah, it's it's a tough road, but, but the thing about adoption is that, you know, I know for a lot of women, for example, who go through all kinds of, like, struggles trying to get pregnant, yep. there is no guarantee that you're ever going to be able to have a baby with adoption. If you are determined to be stronger than the process, like, right. you will end up with a baby eventually. Like, right. if you stick with it, like, it may take, you know, some people have two failed adoptions, three. Like, but by sticking it out, like there is a guarantee. Right. Um, and so that's like that's the good news. I mean, I honestly can't wait to like do it all again for for right. number two. <laughs> so.
0: So number two is on the way.
1: For sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know who it is or when, but we definitely you know have like have our name in various places and yeah. um, wherever baby two comes from is is great. But. Um, we definitely want to adopt another one.
0: And you still wake up every day and you love that child, like you know, it's your it's your child. And like some people are hesitant, yeah. like oh, it's I don't know what it's going to feel like. Yeah, and, and, but it's no, it
1: just people always said that to me, but I don't, and I don't know the difference. I guess so. Right. Maybe maybe it would be different, but I I just I guess I don't believe it. And maybe this is like a terrible analogy, but you know, we have three puppies that we adopted from shelters and. And I always felt before I had a child, and people would say, oh, well, it's not the same as if you have your own child, something absurd like that. And I'm like, I have these three dogs. I would throw myself in front of a bus for my dog. Like, you can't tell me that I'm gonna adopt a baby and I'm not gonna feel like that times 100. Right. So I don't really understand that, like train of thought. And I feel like my baby is like 100 times cuter and happier than a baby (laughs) that I would've given birth to would've been, so I'm like, (laughs) I feel like I couldn't have gotten anything better. Yes. <laughs> and I'm sure when she's 13, I'll be saying something different. But I'm sure with my offspring, was my th- genetic offspring was 13, I would probably be butting heads with that child as well. So um, <laughs> it's just going to be, yeah. It's, you know, I, I just can't imagine anything so more you, perfect. You
0: mentioned rescue dogs. I also want to touch on briefly your diet because you're, you're pretty much vegan. Yeah. You're, you're not 100% vegan, but. To maybe talk to a little bit about why you've made choices around food.
1: Yeah, um, I've been mostly plant-based since 2009, so I guess about yeah. eight years. And again, like I'm obsessed with animals, so right. That's that's where it came from. I just um, only reason I wasn't a full-on vegetarian already at that point was because for years as a competitive athlete, I had been told that. I wouldn't be as good without like protein from animals and all of this. And um, I had even tried being vegetarian, you know, for a time before and was talked out of it, you know, as a teenager. And um, so, really, the only reason that I did eat animal products was just because I thought I needed it for my athletic performance. And finally, it got to the point in 2009 where I just decided that there were, imagine that, bigger things than my own athletic performance and more important things in the world. And that, I just decided that I could not live with myself eating animals anymore. And if my performance is going to suffer, so be it. This is a decision I, I had made. Right. And so it was from then on that was, that was that. Like I cut, I mean, animal products. To be honest, like what I mostly ate was like cottage cheese, yogurt, all that kind of stuff. Right. That was a huge staple in my diet, and that was the that was the biggest like right. sacrifice for me. Um, but yeah, cut out meat as well. Right. Um, just still- because I love animals. <laughs>
0: And so, you're a mom now. You've got Smash Fest Queen growing, and so, like, what what's next for you? You're coaching. Like, what do you what's 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 next?
1: Gosh, um, really, just I mean, I have these two businesses: a coaching business and this clothing business with my partner Michelle, that are really far more than full time work. What's next is I would like to find a way eventually to have more time with my child. I'm yep. very fortunate to have a husband that stays home with her. Um, while I work from home, I'm yep. very much working from home. So he does uh, the bulk of the childcare duties, which is awesome. Yeah. And you know, there's a certain element of nose to the grindstone for a certain amount of years that's required in, in getting businesses like this off the ground. Yep. Um, but at a certain point, I would like to make it so that I can I can have a little bit better uh, work-life balance. Sure. Um,
0: I don't know if yeah. you do balance well.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I, I love. I love my jobs, but I'd rather. I'd I like to spend a little bit less time in front of the computer screen and more time like hiking with my kid, sure. that kind of thing. Got it.
0: So last question, so if you could go back in time and give advice to that what is it, 23 or 24 year old when you were first, you you're running your first triathlon, yeah. is that the age, was that was 22, that right? yeah. 22, like yeah. if you could go back in time and give that person advice, what would it be?
1: Gosh. Um, I'm so bad at this question because I don't do regret very well, so that
0: <laughs> just like, Not regret, just advice.
1: Yeah, this implies like it's the other thing I There's no change. regret, no regret, yeah. just advice. Really, just enjoy the ride. Yep. I mean, it was a really great ride—like living out of a suitcase and traveling the world and racing and training. It was awesome, and it, and I really did appreciate it while I was doing it. Right. Um, but I guess it would just be—it would just be that. Good enough, <laughs>
0: Hillary. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.